The scripture reading is found in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he returned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pyre. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's return to the scripture we read just a few moments ago. Luke chapter 14. What are we doing in the gospel according to Luke? We are looking. We've been here for over a year and a half, a year and nine months to be exact. What are we doing with Luke? We're looking at the life of Jesus of Nazareth. He is set forth. We sang it in our opening hymn. He is set forth in all the gospels as the son of God incarnate, the son of God and the son of man. He set about proving his deity by doing only what God could do. And then he asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? They answered what we sang this morning. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Messiah. From that very moment, Jesus began for the first time, he began to speak to them about his mission. By chapter 14, he is moving toward Jerusalem for the last time. He's on his way there <clears throat> to fight the greatest battle that has ever been fought. He's going there to die. That is what we're doing in the book of Luke. That's what we're doing in chapter 14. Before we look at the text for this morning, let's pray together and ask him to speak to us. <clears throat> Our Father, this is the one time during the week that we bow our heads together <clears throat> as a whole. <clears throat> Excuse me. We bow our heads together. as a whole congregation of priests 
Father, during the week we have prayed for the world around us, but we prayed as individual priests. What a privilege it is with brothers and sisters on our right and left to bow and pray together, all of us bound together in prayer. We come before you, Father, this morning, praying, as always, for Priscilla Turner. Father, we pray that you would continue to give her strength spiritually and physically for these days. We pray, Father, that you would bring healing. We pray for Jim Bennington. We ask that, Father, he would not only know your presence, but that you would renew his strength physically. We thank you for Billy Griggs. We thank you for his presence this morning. What a blessing. We pray that, Father, you would continue to strengthen him, strengthen his mind, strengthen his body. Father, we pray for, for Luke Smith. As he begins this work, in Tucson. Father, we ask, you know what he needs. You know what he needs here from this area. You know what he needs there. And you are the perfect provider. So we ask our Father for him. And we pray that you would use him in building your work there in Tucson. Fill him with your spirit. Give him fellow leaders there that will encourage and strengthen. Our Father, we pray for the farmers of Fayette County. During the spring and early summer, Father, we prayed for the plowing, the planting, and good weather and good rain, and you answered us. And now we pray, Father, for a rich harvest. Give us a good time. Give us good days and weeks of harvest now. As we open your word, John Sartell could not say anything or do anything that will make any difference in our lives. But we've heard you speak, Father, in the power of your Holy Spirit. And we pray that this morning we would hear you once more. Oh, Father, in your grace, come speak to your people. Give us ears to hear. Maybe some of us for the very first time. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Thank you. Jesus, you can't be serious. As Jesus moved toward Jerusalem, the masses swarmed around him. Greater multitudes than at any time in his ministry. Galileans, Samaritans, Judeans came to see him, came to hear him. It would have been an impressive sight in any day. Popularity can be a deceiving thing 
Churchill said at the height of his popularity when he was asked about it, I'm not impressed with the crowds who come to see and hear me. I realize a crowd just as large would come to see me hanged. And Jesus of all men understood what Churchill was saying. Jesus was headed to his execution. But that's the context. You must see that. He knew a crowd similar to the one around him that day in chapter 14. He knew another crowd, a similar crowd, would shout, crucify him, crucify him, in just a few weeks. They are in Pilate's courtyard. They would cry that. That's what prompted him when he looked at this crowd. That's what prompted him to say the words that we read. Look at verse 25. Large crowds were traveling. This was constant. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus. And turning to them, he said. Now, usually, you can see this in the Gospels over and over again, when there's a large crowd. Even when there's a large crowd. You'll read the words, and Jesus spoke to his disciples. Or Jesus spoke to the Pharisees. Read the Sermon on the Mount. Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5. How does it begin? There was this huge crowd and Jesus saw the crowd and he came to his disciples and spoke to them. But he doesn't say that here. This time, he spoke to the crowd. He knew they did not understand. He knew they were not committed. These people had come from all over Israel. Some had come from outside of Israel. They came to hear him. The one who some said was Messiah. In fact, they came to hear the man that he himself claimed to be the Messiah. They came to see him heal the sick by fiat. They came to see this constant conflict between Jesus and the religious leaders. Maybe on this day he would make another audacious claim. Well, that's not what they heard. Jesus turned to the crowd and in so many words he said, Are you following me? Or are you just hanging around? In the passage before us in this scene, he forced the crowd to answer four questions. He put four questions before them. Their answer to these four questions would determine whether they were following him or whether they were just there. This morning, I pray that in the power of the Holy Spirit, that same Jesus will ask these four questions. He's only going to ask two this morning. He's going to ask the last two. He's going to ask the last two next week. How will you answer? How will I answer? That's our theology. You don't believe that John Sartell, that this is his idea. You don't believe that he's going to ask the questions. Christ is here. In the power of his spirit, he'll ask these questions. The first question said to the crowd, 
Do you love me more than you love your family? Look at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. People, those are strange words. We know that Jesus teaches us all through Scripture, God teaches us all through Scripture, to love our parents, to love our children, to love our siblings. We know that God created the family. It's a foundational unit to civilization. So what did Jesus mean when he seemed to be calling us to hate members of our own family? He was saying, when you come to me, when you really follow me, not geographically, but when you follow me, when your life is patterned after my will, I will take precedence. I'll take precedence over your father. I'll take precedence over your mother. I'll take precedence over your son and daughter. Why did he use the word hate? He's not advocating intentional and deliberate hatred for one's parents or children. You know that. What you may not have known was that the Hebrew language did not have a word for love less. You love this person less. You love this person less. Didn't have a word for that. The idiom that they would use would say, you love one and you hate the other. Didn't mean you loathe the other. It meant that your affection was so much here and not here. Having understood that, let's focus on the fact, why did he choose mother and father? Son and daughter. Those are the relationships that are closest to us. He chose the people that we're apt to love the most. I hate liver. I cannot stand liver. I don't care how you fix it. It's awful. It's a post-fall phenomenon. <laughs> It's not going to be liver in heaven. Jesus has never come to me, ever come to me, and said, John, love me more than liver. He doesn't do that. He's going to choose that which I love the most. Whatever challenges our love for him, our love for God, he's going to show up. He showed up and said, when, when Janet and I were dating and when uh, we were getting married, he showed up and said, do you love her more than you do me? When Jill was born, uh, you realize she's not God. You love me? He's going to show up. Whatever is in our lives. But then there's the reality of the people in that crowd that would, actually, that would actually have to make a choice between Jesus and their family. 
This afternoon, read John chapter 9. Here's this poor man. He's been blind. Blind. And Jesus heals him. And the Pharisees come to him and say, Now you can't be saying that he's Messiah because he did this. And this man expressed his faith in Jesus. You know what happened? He was thrown out of the synagogue. His parents were thrown out of the synagogue. A common phrase in Israel in that day would have been son, daughter. If you follow Jesus, you'll no longer have a place in this house. You'll no longer be our child. That's what Jesus said this in this context. If you have to choose between your parents, your synagogue, and me, Jesus was audacious in saying, I will be first. This is not some new theology. In the Old Testament, Ten Commandments, what's the very first commandment? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. God was saying to love anyone or anything more than him, including parents or children. That's idolatry. That's making that thing, that person, an idol. That's a tough question, isn't it? You love Jesus more than you do your husband or wife. You love Jesus more than you do your parents. More than you do your son or daughter. If, if you just gloss over that, if that doesn't disturb you, you don't understand. A mother and father, parents, were transferring their membership to the church I was serving. They had a couple of children who they wanted to join the church with them, and these children had not made a profession of faith. And so for three months, they had gone through a, a program that, that we had, meeting every week, memorizing scripture verses, understanding what they meant, and then on the 12th time we met, I had their parents who were joining the church, transferring their membership. I had them come with us. And one of the girls, one, one of the children, quoted this verse from, from Luke 14. And I, I asked her, I said, what's that verse mean to you? What's Jesus saying to you? And she was in junior high school. She said, it's saying to me that I must love Jesus is saying, I must love him more than I do. And her mom and dad were sitting right there. More than I do my mom and dad. I said, really? She said, yes. And I said, well, what's this verse mean to your mother and father? And she said, it means 
that they must love Jesus more than they love me. I've never had this happen before. The father just blurted out. Jesus could not have been serious when he said that. He, he couldn't stop himself from saying it. It just blew him away. Now, this man was a Christian. He was a believer. But for the first time, he was coming face to face with what that meant. He became an outstanding leader in that church. But that day, when he heard his daughter, junior high, say, it means that my mom and dad must love Jesus more than they love me. It blew him away. People, Jesus was serious. We're teaching our children, you know, Kimberly's teaching our children. This, her staff is teaching our children. Four, five, six, seven years old. In this place, we're saying, you love God first. Whatever you do in all your life, you love Jesus first. Above all, more than you love your father. More than you love your mother. You will encounter no one or no thing in your life that is more important. And when they reach a certain age... We, we don't look at them and say, well, that was just for children. Jesus was not serious. He could not have been more serious. Do you love me more than you do love your family? Second question Jesus asked. Do you love me more than you do your own life? Look again at verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life. Mark that if you're in your own Bible. If you're reading a pew Bible, even mark it there. It needs to be marked. <laughs> yes, even your own life. And then he elaborates. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. You must not only love me more than you do your family, but even you must love me more than you do your own life. These people in Israel, they were living in a day when it was a common thing to see a man surrounded by Roman soldiers carrying his cross to the place of crucifixion. That's how they looked at that. We've, we don't pass anybody. You won't pass anybody in Fayette County this week carrying the cross to the place of crucifixion. They saw it. They knew what it meant. When you saw a man carrying a cross, he was on his way to die. And Jesus said, when you follow me, you're like the man carrying his cross to the place to die. You are giving up your life. When Jesus said this, he was looking at his, the original 12 disciples Ten of them. He knew when he said this, ten of them would give up their lives. They would die a physical death because of their faith in Jesus. Because they said, I love him more than I do my own life. December the 7th, 1941, President Roosevelt asked the citizens of the United States, are you willing to die for your country? We usually don't talk about, think about, 
following Jesus with the same urgency that we think about Roosevelt's call to war. But that's exactly what Jesus demands. This Jesus, meek and mild, this is what he teaches the children in Sunday school. In 1979, I've gotten to the age, you know, I, I remember 79 really well. You know, and then Tyler says to me, I wasn't even born in 79. You know. Now, I remember this very, very well. In 1979, Chet, Chet Bitterman arrived in Bogota, Colombia to work with the Karyani Indians, to begin to work with them. He was a missionary with Wycliffe, that great mission organization. His wife and two daughters lived with him in Bogota. Two years later, January the 19th, 1981, Chet Bitterman was kidnapped by terrorists. He was held for 48 days. This was in every major paper across the globe. Everyone knew about this. Now listen, get this. The rebels demanded that all Wycliffe Bible translators, that all Wycliffe missionaries leave Columbia or Chet Bitterman would be killed. Now understand this. All Wycliffe had to do to save their missionaries' life was to say, we'll take our missionaries and leave. Wycliffe said, we will not leave. Do what you will. The rebels killed Chet Bitterman. People thought that was harsh of Wycliffe. No. He was 29 years of age. During his captivity, he wrote his wife. He quoted from 1 Peter 3, 15 and 16. It's on your scripture sheet. Look at it. This is what he wrote. With, it was in the middle of the letter. But in your hearts, look at it. And I, I'm reading the NIV here. In your hearts, set apart. Set apart Christ as Lord. When you set apart Christ as Lord, what do you do? He's the ruler, not the terrorist. He's the ruler. You set apart Christ as your Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone. This is what he wrote. He knew exactly what he was doing. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. When he wrote that, he was saying, my greatest concern is my testimony to my captors. These men have become my congregation. The people that are holding me, the people that are threatening to kill me, they are the people now that are watching me. He understood. Once he denied self-rule 
and gave himself up to be ruled by Christ, he had already died. He had already died. Whatever your will is. That's what Jesus was saying. By the way, he wrote this when he arrived in Columbia. Maybe this is just some sort of self-inflated martyr complex, but I find this recurring thought that perhaps God will call me to be martyred for him in his service in Columbia. I am ready, end quote. You say, well, I, I haven't been called to be a martyr. That's not your question to either ask or answer. The question put to me and you is, do you love me more than you do your life? Will you give up your life? If that means ministry, that means preaching, if it means going here, going there, maybe, you know, the calling that you have at the bank or in school, whatever. But you're giving up your life to me. Don't think that you have received a lesser call than Chet Bitterman. The issue is not whether you're five years old or 85 years old. Don't make light of, don't think lightly of five years old, five year olds who want to follow Jesus. Eighteen years ago, I thought about this this week. Eighteen years ago, I befriended a young man from the Sudan. He was here. He was in Memphis. His families were Christians in a land where Christians were being killed. He had seen his own father slain. For one reason, his father was a Christian. He was killed. Listen to me. When he was five years old, his mother, imagine how much she loved him. She took him to the front porch of their little house and said to the five-year-old and to his brother, she hugged him and said, run, run for your life. His name was Thon. He became part of a group of 20,000 kids, all of them Christians. They went across the wilderness of Sudan. Days, weeks. There weren't. There was not an adult with them. Most of their ages, the most of the twenty thousand were between four years old and twelve. A mother had given her child to Jesus Christ because she had given her life to Jesus. 
And that boy learned it well. When I met him, he had grown into a man of great, great faith. I saw him this week. Even when you're five years old, Jesus is setting you apart for him. And he keeps, as I said, he keeps returning. Calvin said that our hearts are idle factories. We just produce idols all the time. But you can count on when, when another love some, you know, whether it's football or basketball or sports or whether you're young and here's some young lady or young man, no matter what, you, it doesn't matter. We all have those kind of loves. And Jesus will come once more and he'll say, do you love me? Do you love me more than this? Our hymn is Christ alone.